Scripture lesson is from Daniel chapter 6. So the Jews, uh, let me set some historical context for you. The Jews are living in Babylon where a Persian is king. His name is Darius and history knows him to be a sagacious leader. But for reasons I'll explain in a moment, Darius issues an edict in the kingdom so that no one can worship any being in the universe except for the Persian king himself which is a fabulously bad idea for any king in any land at any time, but this is especially bad for a young Jewish aristocrat named Daniel. Daniel is between the devil and the deep blue sea. Although Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he continued to go to his house, which had windows in its upper room open towards Jerusalem, and to get down on his knees three times a day to pray to his God and praise God, just as he had done previously. The conspirators came and found Daniel praying and seeking mercy before his God, and they went to tell King Darius. When the king heard the charge, he was very much distressed, but he gave the command, and Daniel was brought and thrown into the den of lions. The king said to Daniel, May your God, whom you faithfully serve, deliver you. A stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet, so that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. Then the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. No food was brought to the king, and sleep fled from him. Then at break of day, the king got up and hurried to the den of lions. And when he came near the den where Daniel was, he cried out anxiously to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you faithfully serve, been able to deliver you from the lions? Daniel then said to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lions' mouths. Then the king was exceedingly glad and commanded that Daniel be taken up out of the den. And the king gave a command, and those who had accused Daniel were brought and thrown into the den of lions. And before they reached the bottom of the den, the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones in pieces. Then King Darius wrote to all peoples and nations of every language throughout the whole world, may you have abundant prosperity. I make a decree that in all my royal dominion, people shall tremble and fear before the God of Daniel. For the Lord is the living God, enduring forever. God's kingdom shall never be destroyed, and no end to his dominion. Pray with me. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. During this sermon series on fantastic beasts, I've gotten fascinated with collective nouns and having a lot of fun with these nouns by which we refer to groups of things like a flock of sheep, a gaggle of geese, a herd of swine, a choir of angels, a constellation of stars, a belt of asteroids, a bevy of quail, a bevy of beauties, a brace of orthodontists, a bridge of admirals, a death row of vultures, an embarrassment of riches, an embarrassment of parents for teenagers, a fidget of altar boys, a fistful of dollars, a geek of engineers, a glitter of generals, a gossip of relatives, a mass of Catholics, a nest of vipers, a nest of bulls, a nest of machine guns, 
a quake of seismologists, a quarrel of lawyers, a waddle of basset hounds. I think my favorite is an unkindness of ravens. That's how we refer to a flock of ravens, an unkindness of raven, ravens because they are harbingers of death. Joe's favorite is a bloat of hippos. <laughs> but I think the best collective noun of them all is a pride of lions, yes? It's just right. For as long as anybody can remember, the lion has been the king of the beasts. It's Panthera leo by its formal classification. I think that's an elegant regal name, right? Panthera leo. Aslan, Mufasa, Simba, even the cowardly lion came through in the end. As the second largest cat, the lion is much smaller than the tiger, but a big male can weigh about 500 and 50 pounds. Their canines are three inches long. I think it's a sort of a linguistic joke that the cat's canines are bigger than the canine's canines. A lion's roar can be heard from five miles away, a ferocity that MGM has harnessed for its own purposes since 1916. The current MGM lion is the seventh. Do you know what his name is? Leo, of course. He's been the MGM Lion since 1957, the year I was born, 60 years. In the 17th century, the Tower of London kept lions as a spectacle for the curious crowds. The ticket for admission, price of admission, was a dog or a house cat for the lion's supper. And so it's not surprising that before in more enlightened times, recently, a den of lions was an instrument of execution. Before there was Nero, there was Darius king of Persia. If you paid any attention in Sunday school, you know that in 587 BC, the only superpower in the world, Babylon, annihilated the city of Jerusalem and left behind nothing but smoking ruins and carted off the aristocracy to Babylon. But superpowers never last very long. So before not too long, the king of Persia crushes Babylon as completely as Babylon annihilated Jerusalem, and now there is a Persian king on the Babylonian throne, and the Jews are answering to Darius. And in Darius's regime, if you could read and write and count and pick stocks and calculate derivatives, or best of all, speak Persian, you could do all right for yourselves. You might end up working for the king in his palace, Daniel was one such Jewish aristocrat who managed by grit and determination to rise to the very top of the Darius Pyramid. He so distinguishes himself among the Persians that Darius makes him one of 120 satraps, which is another word, I think, for the president's cabinet, right? His most trusted advisors. So Daniel, the LeBron James of smoky wood-paneled back rooms, in political places, was doing all right for himself, except that there was one lesson Daniel had failed to learn. You gotta work hard, but not too hard. You gotta do well, but not too well, or you will kindle resentments among your colleagues, right? I know this is going to shock you, but sometimes presidential cabinets are rife with intrigue and rivalry. And so Daniel's, Daniel's fellow satraps, or cabinet members, notice two things 
about Daniel. He is inhumanly talented and insufferably pious. He won't cuss. He keeps kosher. He prays towards the smoldering ruins of Jerusalem three times a day. And in the locker room at the squash courts, they notice that he's altered his anatomy in a small way. So the other cabinet members get together and come up with a way to rid the cabinet of this talented, pious Jewish all-star who's so good he's making everyone else look bad. They convince King Darius to pass a law making it illegal to pray to any being in the universe besides the Persian king himself. And so there's Daniel between the devil and the deep blue sea. He's being crushed between two immutable laws, the law of the land and the law of his God. Here's Torah and here's Darius. Bam, Daniel's crushed between. But he just goes on praying to Yahweh as he always did. And the Bible takes a moment to take the trouble to tell us that he prayed before open windows. Daniel's piety is not private, it's public. He wants everybody to know whom he worships. Poor Daniel. Poor Darius, because the ill-advised monarch is trapped too. Darius loves Daniel. Darius knows how talented Daniel is, but now he's trapped. He's made the law, and literally, literally the law is carved in granite, and it cannot be changed. And so they throw Daniel into a pit with a pride of lions who haven't eaten in a week, and unfortunately for Daniel, lions eat 15 pounds of meat a day. Curiously, the pagan king Darius seems to have some inkling of this story's eventual happy conclusion because he seals up the pit with his own signet and a stone the size of a mini cooper, and he calls down to Daniel, May your God, whom you've served so faithfully, deliver you. Daniel and Darius both spend a sleepless night, and at break of dawn, Darius rushes to the lion's den and finds Daniel not only alive, but sitting there stroking the glorious mane of a lion who is resting his head in Daniel's lap like a pussycat. Or at least that's the way my old Sunday school papers used to show the story. <clears throat> story has a happy ending, of course. Justice is vindicated. In a bloody denouement, Darius tosses all of the other 119 satraps at the pride of lions, who, the Bible tells us, break all their bones in pieces before they hit the floor of the pit. The Bible is blunt and without apology. Remember, this is a story of revenge from a persecuted people on the persecutors. Story has a happy ending, at least for Daniel, but he didn't know that when he started praying three times a day before that open window. Daniel knows that chances are good he'd be torn limb from limb by that pride of lions. Most falsely accused innocents who maintained their integrity despite lethal consequence, get their bones broken into pieces before they hit the floor of the den. You can insist on staying good and right and true, but that doesn't mean you're going to stay alive. You've heard the story of the man who appeared before the pearly gates for the inevitable interview with St. Peter, and before St. Peter lets the man in, he says, so what have you done to deserve entrance into the pearly gates? Have you done anything impressive in your life? And the man thinks for a while and finally he says, 
Well, there was that one time when I was traveling through the Black Hills of South Dakota and I came upon a gang of bikers harassing a young woman. And I told them to leave her alone, but they wouldn't listen. So I went up to the biggest, baddest, most tattooed biker of them all, and I smacked him on the head, and I kicked his bike over, and I ripped out his nose ring and threw it on the floor, and I said, now back off, or you'll have to answer to me. And St. Peter said, wow, that's pretty impressive. When did this happen? Just, just a couple of minutes ago. There are no guarantees, not even for the righteous. Staying right and good doesn't always mean staying alive and well. Pick your martyr. St. Paul before Nero, or Dietrich Bonhoeffer before Hitler, or Martin Luther King Jr. before the Ku Klux Klan. They all lost. They all died young. But sometimes, sometimes the story teaches us that this is God's world. And in God's world, the lion is not the king of the beasts. God is the king of the beasts. And sometimes God sends an angel to shut the lion's mouths. So this is what we learn from this story, right? There are worse things for us to lose than our lives. We might lose our souls. We might lose the purpose of our existence. When you're crushed between the law of the land and the law of God, the choice is clear, no matter what the consequences. Did you notice that this fall, the public broadcasting service will be showing an 18-hour film about Vietnam by Ken Burns? I don't know if that's more chore or opportunity, but... I do remember that, remember that Civil War piece by Ken Burns from about 20 years ago? I think I learned more about the Civil War from Ken Burns than I did from high school and college combined. According to Ken Burns and his film from 20 years ago, do you remember how the Civil War started? According to Ken Burns, the Civil War was started by a Presbyterian minister. His name was Elijah Parrish Lovejoy, and he was from Maine, he was educated at Princeton Theological Seminary. In 1827, he moved to St. Louis and started a religious newspaper and went to war with slavery. When he attacked a judge named Luke E. Lawless for refusing to prosecute a mob who had lynched a free black man, Mr. Lovejoy was run out of town. How's that for poetry? A dirty judge named Luke E. Lawless. After he was run out of town in St. Louis, Elijah Parrish Lovejoy crossed the Mississippi into Alton, Illinois, and continued publishing his abolitionist newspaper. Three times they dumped his printing presses into the Mississippi River. And the fourth time, Mr. Lovejoy decided that he wasn't going to take it anymore, and he threw himself across his printing presses, and they shot him five times with a shotgun, and he died on the spot. This was in 1837, 24 years before Fort Sumter. According to Ken Burns, that was the start of the Civil War. So two Illinoisans were integral to the Civil War, Lincoln and Lovejoy. 
He once said, if the civil authorities refuse to protect me, I must look to my God. And if I die, I will make my grave in Alton. I have sworn eternal opposition to slavery, and by God, I will not turn back. I can die at my post, but I cannot desert it. There are worse things to lose than your life. You could lose your soul. You could miss your calling. And if you've been paying any attention to the story of Daniel in the lion's den, you might notice that it foreshadows another even more famous story about a falsely accused innocent who is thrown into a pit and left for dead. And when the ill-advised authorities hustle to the pit at first break of day, they find that an angel has come to roll away the stone and he is not in pieces as they expected, but safe and sound. This is God's world, and in God's world, no lie can live long. This side of the grave or the other, there is vindication. In life and in death, we belong to God. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost, amen.